We are and always will be a nation of immigrants. This is my country, my damn country. Give me my country, you can keep the rest. Old men and women yearning for freedom and opportunity who leave their homelands and come to a new country to start their lives over. We were strangers once too. My country, my damn country. Give me my country. Hello, 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 aliens and allies. Your friendly Russian is here. This is We the Aliens podcast, and I am your host, Sasha Kapustina. Here, I talk to immigrants who are kicking ass in the U.S. Thank you for tuning in. My guest this week is Nurit Katz. Nurit is the UCLA's first chief sustainability officer. How cool is that? Nurit also teaches at UCLA's Extension Sustainability Certificate Program, and she is a first-generation American and a proud daughter of an Israeli immigrant. I have to be honest with you here. I did not know what sustainability was until I came to the U.S. And even when I got here, my understanding of it was very surface Partially because when I lived in Russia, sustainability wasn't really an issue that was talked about. And so I wasn't paying attention. And it took a few years for me to tune in and realize how important that issue is. And so I was really excited to talk to Nurit about what sustainability is and is not and how immigrant perspective can be of value here. And here's our chat. My usual first question is, where did your family come here from and when? My mom's side is from Russia, Poland, and Lithuania, but they've been here for longer. So they came over, I think, around like 1918, somewhere in there. But my dad came over himself. He was born in Yugoslavia, but grew up in Israel. And he immigrated here in his 20s to go to college here in the U.S. How did he meet your mom? At college. So they both went to CSUN, the California State University, Northridge. And do you know if his plan was always to stay here or was he going to go back to Israel? I'm not sure. I think he was considering going back. And so it may have been because he met my mom that he ended up staying. Um, but I'm not positive. Got it. Because Israel was such a young country and I, it was such an idealistic idea. Uh, did you grow up with any of that? Yeah, definitely. So my dad was born in 48. Uh, they fled Yugoslavia. He was about three. So it would have been like 1951. Mm -hmm. And he grew up in Beersheba. And, you know, it was not very developed at the time. But yeah, my dad's whole family is in Israel. So we definitely stayed connected. And so did you grow, did you grow up going to Israel for vacations for summers? No, only I mean, it's it's quite a big trip. And Expensive. Yeah. So um, I, I went when I was four years old and then I went back when I was 14. And then uh, many years later, maybe 34 or something. So I've been three times. Mm. But my my father's brother is a folk singer, sings songs about Israel, and he comes to the U.S. fairly often. Did you ever get to do the birthright thing? I didn't. All three of my brothers went and they went on the same trip. But I I always intended to go and then I got too old. So I missed got my it. opportunity, unfortunately. I yeah. missed mine too because I I didn't know about it. And what I did, I moved to Israel. I did Aliyah. So from Russia. And so oh, wow. I missed out on my birthright. <laughs> yeah, I'm almost yeah. an Israeli citizen, but I, I couldn't live there. But did you ever consider 
moving there? No, I'm very connected to my family and Los Angeles and California. And so I, I've not considered moving anywhere. <laughs> I really, I really love it here. So. so you did not grow up with intense Zionism? No, appreciation for Israel, but I wouldn't say intense Zionism. You know, my father has such a divided family with being half Serbian, half Croatian. So I would say I grew up with a sense that nationalism could be dangerous, that, you know, when you put your nationhood ahead of your common humanity, you know, when religion and nationhood get put before our common humanity, that you can end up with a lot of people hurt and a lot of conflict. And so, yeah, not a lot of strong nationalist sentiment of any kind, more just a sense of the importance of appreciating that we all come from different places. My father is also, he's half Jewish, so um, he converted when he was 13, but his mother was Orthodox Serbian and his father was Jewish Croatian. So very much a mixed family and you know the history of that area. So, you know, a yeah. lot of like the town where he was born, Vukovar, was completely destroyed in war. And then you have all the conflicts in Israel. So just grew up with this intense kind of appreciation of the way in which human conflict can arise from being too focused on our differences as opposed to our, our common humanity. Yeah, that's that's for sure. And in Israel, I think that it's just palpable. That's one of That was one of the main reasons I couldn't live there. I moved there before I moved to, to the U.S., I actually did not plan on coming to the U.S. I, I applied for scholarship and didn't think I was going to get it. And I moved to Israel. And then half a year later, I got Fulbright. That happened. And then my life took a completely different uh, direction. But I oh, did. Wow. What a I, neat opportunity to do Fulbright. That's wonderful. Yeah, it was, it's, you know, opportunity of a lifetime. That's for sure. Um, yeah. And then I... But when I was in Israel, there were several things, you know, that were challenging for me as being, a, you know, uh, half Jewish, you know, I'm not, my mother is not Jewish. So that was there. And um, not everybody is as accepting of, you know, mixed blood. And then the main thing that I couldn't accept about living there was that sense of impending war. And I, mm. I worked on a documentary there about medical clowns. I don't know if you've ever encountered uh, that profession. It's a, it's a job in Israel. Uh, and I was talking to one of them, I was interviewing her and she was saying, well, when we have the next war, and I was like, hold on a second, like, what do you mean when we have the next war? Mm. And that is the mentality that people live with there. Um, did you did you get that feeling when you were there? Not when I was there, because I visited for short periods. And I mean, you do notice like the enhanced security. And I certainly would hear about, you know, conflicts and from family. But when I was there, I just had a beautiful experience with my dad. When I was little, I don't remember that trip very well. I remembered going to a store that I described as a candy store. My mom said it was just a supermarket with a big candy section. And that's what I remembered. So. Um, <laughs> On my more recent trip, um, which was also with my father, so in addition to spending time with family, I also got to visit. So when I started my job at UCLA in sustainability, my grandma sent me this article in the, I think it was in the Jewish Journal, and it was about an eco-town that they were building in Israel, like a mm -hmm. little town that would be all off-grid and solar and all of this. And the name of the town is Nurit. Oh, wow. So I kept the article and I had it up on my office for many years. I, I still have it. And 
the article had this great line in it that I used to joke I should put on my dating profile. It said, like, if you're not into solar energy and all of this, then Narita is not for you. <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious. So on, yeah, so on my more recent trip, which I think was 2014 or something, I, we actually went and visited that town, which is still kind of under construction. But um, I got to see the sign and, you know, stand next to the sign that said Narita mm-hmm. and everything. So that was pretty neat. It's my sister city. yeah literally so did you get to learn any Hebrew I know a little bit I mean I grew up I went to Hebrew school and I have you know a tiny bit of conversational Hebrew but I'm not fluent Um, my dad is fluent in Hebrew and also in Serbo-Croatian I didn't grow up speaking either at home just you know little words or songs but not 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 fully speaking in the home so and so which culture do you think your dad brought more to your family like Israeli or Serbo-Croatian and was it any was there any intentional effort to to maintain that yeah probably more Israeli and there you know we I definitely I grew up in the San Fernando Valley and there is Israeli sort of community there so we would go to Israeli stores or restaurants and certainly you know eat plenty of Israeli food connecting to your uh, work Have you been in touch with any of your Israeli colleagues or universities out there? Yeah, so not a lot. I have colleagues in sustainability who travel to Israel and connect with, you know, Israel is is an incredible leader when it comes to sustainable technology, clean tech. We did have a visitor some years back from the Arava Institute for Environmental Studies. And so they actually look at kind of environmental issues, water issues in the area and use that as a way to try to build peace. So they kind of try to bring different sides together to work on these issues. So it was very interesting hearing about their work. Right. Well, one would think that environment should be the one thing that there's there shouldn't be any argument about between people, and that, sh- that should be a great place to, to work towards peace, right? shortage of resources can sometimes be a source of conflict. You know, a lot of conflicts in the Middle East end up being over water or connected to these issues, but definitely trying to solve them can be a great way to bring people together. Yeah, no, they're, they're amazing. They're really, the, the way they've been developing, and I go visit there regularly as because I worked on the film there, so I got to go several times. And every time I come, it's just better and better. Like when I first moved there 10 years ago, the water was a huge issue and then they just figured it out. And yeah, I just, I just keep thinking about, you know, California and our water issue and like, no. Yeah. I mean, I think last time like I that. checked Israel recycled something like seven, over 70% of water, which is pretty amazing. There's a whole California Israel memorandum around clean technology. And I think there are a lot of active efforts to share best practices and learn from each other and have California and Israel companies work together. So. Yeah. Uh, specifically around clean tech and sustainability. Yeah, because the climate is very similar. It's like we're we're in the desert by the ocean. That's that's pretty much it, <laughs> with no yeah. with not much water, uh, with a little bit of water coming from the mountains. Basically, I do want to move on to the sustainability batch. Can you break it down? What is sustainability? What does it include, really? Because we talk and talk about sustainability, and I don't think people fully understand what it involves. Yeah, it's not the most accessible word. I think a lot of people are not sure how to define it. So, you know, the UN uh, Brundtland Commission definition for sustainability is a common one that's used, and it's meeting the needs of the present 
without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. So ultimately, it's about our kids and our grandkids and future generations. And how do we, you know, manage what we have today so that we aren't screwing things up for the future, basically? Yeah. Um, you know, another sort of framework that's used a lot uh, in business, it's called the triple bottom line. Um, but it's also sort of the three pillars of sustainability is environment, economy and equity. So sustainability really sits at that intersection and it's understanding how those things are connected and understanding that, you know, if you're only focused on one, like if you're only trying to do conservation and you're not worried about, you know, jobs and, and supporting the economy, then you may not have a very successful society. If you're only focused on short-term profit and you're not thinking about um, our long-term resources, you're not going to have a very successful society. And if all the resources, you know, resources go to a tiny number of people and you're not feeding everyone, then that's not a successful society. So how do you you know, how do you put all this together and um, how do we take that into consideration um, as we manage our our businesses, our organizations, our, you know, our cities? I feel like two of the those pillars really don't get much attention in terms of how people understand and talk about sustainability. When when you hear sustainability, you it, it's kind of equated to environmental awareness or whatever. I think a lot of people you know, who lean center right uh, and further right, there's always the issue of jobs and the economy and, oh, your environmental stuff will always damage. But really, sustainability includes that. And how come we, we never yeah. hear about that? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the big frameworks out there, like, you know, the GRI or reporting frameworks for companies, they really do look at social and financial as well as environment and um, you know, the sustainable development goals from the UN really, you know, include addressing poverty and all of this. But I absolutely think you're right. The general understanding people get is that, oh, it's just about environment. Um, and there is, unfortunately, still this lingering outdated idea that, you know, environment and jobs are in conflict. Whereas you look at, you know, just as you were just talking about all these startups in Israel, there's all kinds of jobs and opportunities that can come out of addressing you know critical environmental challenges like climate change or, or water issues yeah um, there's a lot of work so yeah so I, I think that idea is shifting a fair amount I think a lot of companies are starting to understand that sustainability it, you know addressing sustainability means taking a better stakeholder approach that can actually improve their company and the regular bottom line as well as sort of this triple bottom line approach but there are still a lot of sort of myths and ideas out there. One of the reasons I think people tend to think of it as environmental and don't think about the social or, or equity side of sustainability is because the environmental side tends to be a little bit easier to measure and track. And that is a lot of the time what you'll see formal goals and reporting on is, okay, what are the greenhouse gas emissions or how many gallons of water did this company use? And sometimes the social and equity pieces are a little harder to kind of track and measure. Although there are metrics that they look at for companies like in terms of how they pay or treat their employees, et cetera. But, um, but overall, I think there does tend to be more of a focus on the environmental metrics. And so people do get this idea that it's just about green, um, but it's definitely more comprehensive than that. Right. Well, one could talk about the jobs and the impact on GDP that the companies create. That could be a metric. It's kind of clear why economy is part of it. Why is equity part of it? What is the importance of equity in sustainability? 
Well, because I think sustainability is ultimately about figuring out how to sustain human society successfully. And I think, you know, we've seen the kind of conflict and challenges that come from growing inequality around the world. And, you know, if you're only providing a successful good life for very few people, I wouldn't consider that a success for humanity, right? Right. So it has well, to be I certainly to agree. I, I certainly personally agree with that. It's uh, more the question of how do we make other people believe that that's in their interest to make other people, people's life better? Because I feel it's kind of specifically in American society, and I'm comparing it to, you know, Israel, for example, or Russia, even Russia less, but still, there is more of this communal feeling like we are the society we're we're contributing this or that but in the states there is this uh individualistic culture and the idea is that you know you have to fend for yourself and if you're messing it up like well that's your problem and really if anything came out of or is coming out of covid is an, a very sharp example of how you know if somebody's not doing well it's going to be terrible for everybody Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that is the the multi-billion dollar question, right? Is how do you how do you attack apathy? How do you inspire community? How do you sort of how do you get people to care, right? That is the big question and I think there are a lot of great sort of, you know, education and engagement out there that can help to shift that culture. Um, you know, and I think I think you can connect with people regardless of their belief system. Um, you know, sus sustainability is something that regardless of what your view on the world is, you know, there's room for disagreement about the solutions, I guess I would say. Like there are, you know, there are people who prefer to take an approach that's more focused on the private sector and business. And there, there are people who are more focused on policy. And we really need all of those solutions. So I think you can find ways to connect with people There have been studies that show when people don't like the solutions, they tend to deny the problem. So I think some of what we see with climate mm -hmm. change is people think that it's all about regulation and therefore they don't like it if their belief system is, you know, focused on reducing government and reducing regulation. But if you approach someone with that perspective and you talk to them about all the clean tech companies and innovation that's happening Sometimes that can be a doorway into a better understanding of the problem and, um, you know, coming to some sort of consensus on solutions. Right. Well, the other part of, of this, uh, I think, confusion or uh, lack of clarity on, on messaging is what is, uh, what is the important part? Is it the individual's action or larger changes to larger systems? And how can individuals really, truly contribute? Yeah, and, and again, I think you need both. I do think sometimes there's too much of a focus on individual action in various, you know, media or news and not enough focus on, on the need for collective systemic action and change, change to our, you know, change that comes at the, the you know, the local government level, at the national level, et cetera. But it's not either or, you know, mm -hmm. there are sometimes people say, oh, well, it has to be only these hundred companies that are contributing. It's like, well, but there are thousands of customers buying from these companies. So you need both. You need large scale change and you need the small scale change. And 
It's interesting because the individual piece, you know, in talking about what it means to be an immigrant or a first generation, um, you know, one of the things I've found common on both sides of my family and, and in talking to friends, I think this is true of many people who come from immigrant families is, you know, often people, my dad came here with very little. Um, and so there is a sense of resource, that resources are valuable and that you don't waste them. You know, growing yeah. up, I grew up in a culture where if something breaks, you fix it. You don't throw it away. Yeah. You know, my, my mom's side of the family, you know, although they came here earlier, they also like lived through the great depression. So there was, you know, you unwrap a present and you save the wrapping paper. And if there's leftovers, you freeze them. You don't just throw everything away. And so there are a lot of times people talk about sustainability as if it's some newfangled idea, but a lot of the ideas of sustainability of not being wasteful are actually much older ideas in terms of human culture. It's just that we've had this experiment for the last few decades of this disposable culture where we discovered plastic and we're like, oh, let's make everything, you know, disposable. And then it turns out that's not a very good model and there are really long-term impacts. And now we have, you know, plastics in our oceans and in our bodies and everything. And we're starting to think, oh, well, maybe building things that last and can be repaired was a pretty, was a better approach, you know? So in some ways, sustainability can be about new technology and innovation, but it's also about returning to some level of common sense in terms of how we manage things. And in that sense, I think it's very connected to the culture that I find in many immigrant families from all over the world. Yeah, definitely. I can definitely relate to that feeling because when I first got here and, and still, like, I just can't believe how wasteful American culture is and just throwing throwing it all away. <laughs> I, I don't, I never could get that. But that's one of those things that also I think a lot of immigrants face immediately and and you know you get you get an immediate kind of reality check that you're in a different place with how money impacts everything here in the states and mm -hmm. to much larger degree than you feel it in other places of course money runs most things <laughs> all over the world but on the level of individual decisions or just the way the system operates, the reason why there is this culture of throwing it away and buying a new thing is that the system wants you to buy the new thing. The system wants you to spend money and buy a newer thing, even if the old one is still good and not broken, buy the new generation. It has this new function or whatever. And in that sense, it feels like it would take a whole cultural change in the how the economy is run and how the economy functions. And that's mm -hmm. a that's a tall order. Absolutely. And you know, these this whole disposable culture is not even it's not inherent to American culture. It it hasn't existed forever. There was sort of a a period in terms of industrial design and economics where these concepts of what they call planned obsolescence or perceived obsolescence were deliberate, you know, where people were designing products with a shorter life cycle in order to fail so that you would have to buy more. Or, you know, if they aren't failing physically, this concept of perceived obsolescence. So, you know, your iPhone is now old, you have to get the new one. Yeah. Um, these, these were deliberately designed economic and, you know, industrial design approach that I think has resulted in 
a lot of the challenges that we're facing in that area. And so we're kind of getting at that question of how do we create the right incentives? That's it for today. Yes, I am leaving you on a cliffhanger. I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> Tune in on Thursday for part two of the conversation where Nurita and I talk more about sustainability and her work as the sustainability tsaritsa at UCLA and how it's similar and how it's different from working in a similar position at a large company. I'm including a few links uh, to the resources that Nurit shared with me in the show notes. Make sure to check them out. Let us know what you think about the podcast. Shoot us a message. All the contact info and links are in the show notes and on our website. Join our rooms on Clubhouse. Subscribe to our newsletter. You know the drill. And don't forget to share the show with a friend. I don't know. Someone who thinks sustainability is bad for jobs or someone who came to the U.S., with no idea what sustainability is, or someone who's thinking how to include sustainability elements into their business or career like me, just click share and text them a link. And remember, we're here to stay. We'll find our way. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. Keep staying safe. Love you all. Peace. This is my country, my country, my country, and it don't mean a thing.